Thanks everyone for joining us today for Sunday Night Bible Fellowship. It's always good to have you with us. We are grateful to you for tuning in. We're grateful for your prayer support, your financial support. It means a lot to us as we continue and as I continue to make our way through God's Word. And the goal is to bring believers to maturity in Christ. And you do that by the teaching of the Word. And so today we are looking at Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. Again, Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. If you want to take your Bibles and turn to that passage, or if you want to follow along on the screen, I'll have the text up on the screen that we'll be looking at. Today we're going to be looking at God and government. God and government. I don't think we'll probably get through this entire section today because we want to spend some time. It's an excellent opportunity for us to talk a little bit about government and our relation, the believer's relationship to government itself. So with that introduction, let's proceed to take a look at this particular section of Scripture. Before we get to the Scripture itself, again, we get the calendar up here. Calendar uh, is telling us where we're at because we're in Passion Week. We looked a few Sundays ago at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, occurred on Monday. Then on Tuesday, Jesus cleanses the temple again. He overturned tables, seats, prevented people from using the temple as a shortcut. Then we get to Wednesday, and a lot of things are happening on this day. Jesus teaches all day in the temple grounds. The Jewish leaders officially challenge Christ's authority. Jesus tells parables to the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees on the temple grounds. And of course, that's what we looked at last Sunday when we saw him give a parable, a parable that pretty much laid out Israel's history of putting to death, beating, persecuting the prophets in the Old Testament. And then we come to the Son. The Son is finally sent, and they put him to death as well. And that's all contained in that parable. And then uh, the very last thing here on Wednesday, which is where we're at today, is the Jewish leaders plot to kill him. The Jewish leaders plot to kill him. So, let's take a look at the text here. It says in verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. Again, the parable that he's talking about is the one that we just covered last Sunday when we looked at this parable that Jesus gave of a landowner, an absentee landowner, that goes away and he leaves his estate and the work of the vineyard to vineyard workers. And then he begins to send back slaves who come to reap some of the produce. After all, he's the landowner. 
He wants to reap some produce. He sends first slave who is beaten. He sends a second slave, a third slave. They are all mistreated. And then uh, finally he says what he's going to do is send his son to reap some of the produce of the vineyard. And of course they plot to kill the son and they do so in the parable. And this is exactly a picture of Israel, what Israel's done to the prophets that God has sent. And then finally God sends his son and the son is killed by these vineyard workers. So they got the message. They understood, as it says at the end of verse 19, that he spoke this parable against them. So it says here that they tried to lay hands on him that very hour. You have to realize the religious leaders at this point are getting desperate. They are getting desperate because they've got the people on one hand who have really gone after Jesus, they're hanging on his every word, gone after him, and the fact that uh, they are intrigued by him, they are shouting Hosanna, they're following him by the thousands as he comes through the eastern gate of Jerusalem, and it's quite a scene. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, all these head leaders are seeing this, they're seeing that the crowd is totally swayed on the side of Jesus. Just uh, a note here, Mark 12, 13, uh, it says, then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians. Luke doesn't mention the Herodians. I think it's just uh, noteworthy to point it out because the Herodians were a uh, Jewish non-religious group. They were a group of, by their name, Herodians, that obviously supported the Herods that were in power uh, in Rome. And they were there as well. And I think that'll be significant as we take a look through these verses and what they're describing to him. But anyway, the Pharisees and Herodians, two of them in order to trap him in a statement. So Mark 12 is talking about the same incident that Luke chapter 20 is talking about here. So the scribes, the chief priests, the Pharisees really have a dilemma on their hands because on the one hand, Jesus' popularity with the people is increasing, but on the other hand, Jesus keeps exposing their false religiosity for what it is, an evil, works righteousness, legalistic, hypocritical system that puts to death all those who oppose it. So... To them, every hour counts. He's becoming more popular, and we're losing credibility in the sight of the people because he keeps exposing us religiosity, religious pretending that we're putting forth. Jesus is exposing it before the people. So this isn't going well. We need to find a way to put him away take him out. They wanted to arrest Jesus, and they wanted him now. All right? Verse 20, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might 
catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. All right, so here what we're going to see is a five-step, in this verse, a five-step diabolical plan. All right, what's the first thing? It says here, so they watched him. So their plan was, let's watch Jesus. Now this isn't new. This isn't something different that they're doing. They've done this before. Luke 6, verse 7, chapter 6, verse 7 says, the scribes of the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath. Luke 14, 1, it happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they watching him closely. I mean, they've got their eyes on Jesus because they're trying to find some way to trip him up, to find something that they can accuse him of and to get rid of him. So the first thing, we're going to watch Jesus. Number two, we're going to send spies, it says here. So they watched him, they sent spies. And they picked out individuals who they would send in there as spies. Number three, who pretended to be righteous. Well, that shouldn't have been too hard for the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the chief priests, and all the rest of these religious people to pretend to be righteous. They do that every day. That's what religion is. It's pretending to be righteous, right? So they were going to pretend to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement. So the fourth point of their plan is to catch him saying that which would condemn him. And then fifth, so they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. So the fifth and final part of their plan is to arrest and deliver Jesus over to Pilate. You've got to remember, Passover is taking place in Jerusalem. At this time, Pilate would have come into Jerusalem just to oversee the whole thing. Make sure nothing gets out of control, nothing gets out of hand, uh, that everything is going as normal. So Pilate would be there, being sent by the Roman government to be there to oversee things. So this was their whole goal. Their goal was to get Jesus arrested and before Pilate. Once that happened, they felt they were home free. So to do this, they have to show Jesus to be a rebel, an insurrectionist against Rome. Once that happens, it's game, set, match. It's over. Game, set, match. It's over. They've got him. Well, it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen yet for a couple more days. It's not going to happen at this time. Verse 21. So they questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. So notice here how they butter up, they cajole, they kowtow to Jesus, so to speak. They use flattery. Flattery is insincere praise to achieve selfish ambitions. And so what do they say? First of all, they call him teacher. 
Next, we know that you speak and teach correctly. Okay, did they really believe these things? No, 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 no. And you are not partial to any. They did not believe that. But teach the way of God in truth. Can't you just hear them just trying to butter up to Jesus as much as they possibly could in order to get him to fall into this trap? On the next slide, someone has said this, making a differentiation between gossip and flattery. Quote, gossip involves saying behind a person's back what you would never say to his face. Flattery, which is just the opposite, is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind his back. End quote. So, this is their strategy. The strategy is, we'll use flattery. We'll get Jesus on our side. He'll think, oh, these are just some innocent people. We'll pop this question. He'll answer it incorrectly. And as a result, he'll be arrested and we'll have him. So none of the leaders who gave these three compliments in verse 21 believed them. The whole thing was a pack of lies. Every bit of it was. So now they come up with their gotcha question, right? They've been thinking about the uh, gotcha type of question. And it involves taxes. So verse 22 says, Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Immediately when you bring up the word taxes or the subject of taxes, you've brought up a controversial subject in that day and age back in the first century, living in Israel. You see, Rome imposed taxes on everything. I mean, they had a, a land tax on everything it produced. They had import taxes, meaning goods coming in. They had export taxes on the goods going out. They had an income tax. They had a poll tax. I mean, they just taxed everything. And the, and the people, like we said, would apply for franchises to become tax collectors. And I mean, they could, at any point, they could stop anybody, somebody pulling a cart, let's say with a donkey or whatever, they could examine it all. They could say, well, you know, we need to tax this. We need to tax these wheels. We need to do this just to get money out of the people. And those people lived under that all during that time. And so it was a terrible situation. They hated the Roman government because of it and all the taxes that were collected. And you could take all the taxes and you can really boil them down to three taxes which were collected. One was a ground tax or a land tax, meaning the things that were grown on land would be taxed. So it was made up of 10% of all the grain that was produced and 20% of all the wine and fruit that was produced. Secondly would be an income tax. The income tax was 1% of a man's income. And the number three was a poll tax, which was a flat tax of one denarius, a denarius being a day's wage, was paid by all men from 14 to 65 years of age and on all women between the ages of 12 to 65. So you had all these taxes and the people that collected them, of course, 
were as crooked and corrupt as can be, and they were adding on their own fees and so on, and this whole thing got to be way out of hand. So the Jews hated Rome for their taxes, especially paying them to an idolatrous Gentile nation of all places. All right. So on the one hand, it would have been easy for Jesus just to say, no, don't pay your taxes. And you know what? The people would have loved it. They would have cheered. They would have thought, this is our hero. This is the one who is going to stand up to Rome. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to set us free. And so, on the one hand, you would have pleased the people. Now, it's interesting that 30 years prior to this happening, there was a man by the name of Judas of Galilee who came along and he says, Jews should not pay their taxes. He said that anything that is given should only be given to the Lord God and not to Rome. That led to an insurrection, and Rome ended up killing Judas of Galilee. So that's in the minds of everyone that's there and knows very well that if someone says, don't pay your taxes, you're going to end up dead. So I'm sure the leaders, you know, thought that he would say no. Then they could arrest him and turn him over to Pilate. Once arrested, the Jews would see Rome as the power over Jesus and not Jesus over the Romans, and it will cause them to turn immediately against Jesus. So the religious leaders thought they had this, this really covered if he says, no, don't pay your taxes. And so it will cause them to turn immediately against Jesus. Once Jesus says, no, don't pay them, the Herodians, remember this group, that uh, people that are following along, this group that's in on this whole thing, will report to the Romans and they'll have Jesus arrested. And if Jesus says, on the other hand, yes, pay them, he will lose the people who will think he is not the Messiah for supporting a Gentile, idolatrous nation. And with the people not a factor, they can arrest Jesus, bring him to trial, and they can kill him. I mean, these leaders have thought this out. They figured out, I think we've got him. There's no way he can possibly wiggle out of this whole thing. Okay, move to verse 23. After the question is asked, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Verse 23 says, but he, Jesus, detected their trickery, and he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. All right, let's stop right there a minute. Verse 23 says, but he detected their trickery and said to them. In the Gospel of Mark, it says, knowing their hypocrisy. In Matthew, it says, perceive their malice. And in Luke, it says, perceived their trickery. So you got hypocrisy, you got malice, and you got trickery. Gives us a pretty good idea of what Jesus was detecting about them. It says here, show me a denarius. Again, we've talked about a denarius being a day's wage. 
might have had a hard time, by the way, coming up with that coin in that crowd of Jewish people, because Jewish people did not use Roman coin or currency. They had their own coins. They would never be caught dead with a coin that had an inscription on it or an image on it of a Caesar. They felt that was idolatry. They wouldn't do it. So somebody had to come up with a denarius, and obviously they did. And so it says, show me a denarius. And Jesus then says, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. So Caesar's, the guys themselves that ran Rome, they had their image on the coins during their reign. So in other words, if when, once you took office, you had coins printed, it had your image on it, and that's what all of Rome was to use, was that coin, which had the image of the Caesar on it. These guys had big egos, and they made it known in a lot of different ways, and one way was to put their image on the coin itself. Again, like I said, Jews didn't carry them because it was a sign of idolatry, that they were carrying an image in their pocket that was an idol to the Roman people. So the religious leaders now think they've got him. Once he says, show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said Caesar's. They were thinking, we've got him. He's referring to the coin. He's referring to the image that's on the coin. He is going to say that you need to pay your taxes because look at who's on the coin. So they think he's going right down that path. He's going right down the path of idolatry, and he'll end up saying no. But in a shocking turnaround, Jesus says this question is not an either-or, but a and-also. What they're trying to do is they're trying to pit these two things against each other. Caesar and God. Government and God. And who are you going to follow? And Jesus is saying, you don't have to make that choice because you need to support both of them. So he says in verse 25, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So this is a shocking turnaround. This is not something that they expected when Jesus is going to say, hey, both of them need to be supported. So in other words, give to Caesar what is his, and give to God what is his. Do them both. Both are important. So what Jesus? what is Jesus saying here? Well, number one, the believer lives in two worlds. The believer lives in two different worlds because Jesus is saying you need to support both of these. Okay, so what are we talking about? We're talking about two worlds. Well, Here's a quote from John MacArthur that I think is helpful because he he not only talks about the two worlds, but he talks about our relationship to government and even to America itself. John says, quote, we live in two worlds. We're citizens of this temporal world and a human government, while at the same time citizens of the kingdom of God under the rule of God himself and Christ. The church is not to take over civil government. The church is not to rebel against civil government. The church is not to become the critic 
of civil government, neither by war, by civil disobedience, or by political power are we supposed to control civil government. This is not a sacral society. This is not a theocratic kingdom. America is not, neither is any other earthly nation, end quote. So the point is, is that we do function and we do live in two different worlds. And we've got a temporal world and we've got an eternal world. And each one has its place in our lives. All right, now let's take a look at, Jesus is saying we live in two worlds. Number two, they are citizens of an earthly kingdom and they are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. They have dual citizenship. Remember Paul says in Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven. Okay, so we know we've got a heavenly citizenship. Going along with that, here's John chapter 18, verse 36, where Jesus answered and he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Jesus wants us to understand that there are two kingdoms. There is a heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of God, and there is an earthly kingdom. And Jesus is saying the eternal kingdom of God is not of this world. It is different from this world. If it was the same thing as this world, then my servants would be fighting. We'd be taking up arms. And I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, he says, my kingdom is not of this realm. So number three then, I have an obligation to my earthly kingdom. I have an obligation to my earthly kingdom. A few points underneath that. All nations, all governments are established by God. And why is that true? And it was true ever since the uh, Tower of, of Babel and all those people were scattered. They were given different languages and nations were established. Why did God do that? Well, it provides a check and balance. One nation is not going to get so far out of line that another nation is going to keep it in check. So therefore, it provides stability in the world. It provides for the welfare of this world by having a diversity of nations. Another thing is, every government provides for its people, in some measure, protection, material resources, food, order, so that it does not turn into anarchy and chaos. None of us have ever lived in a nation or lived on this earth without a government over us. We don't know what that's like, but we can pretty much assume it would be nothing but chaos and anarchy, and it would destroy itself very quickly. So therefore, even the worst government here on earth is better than no government at all. Keep that in mind. As much as you might dislike what goes on in Russia or communist China or Argentina, Venezuela, 
wherever in this world, Iran, Iraq, and so on, it's better to have those governments than no government at all. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. Okay. Government has a legitimate right to be funded with our taxes. I mean, after all, think of what government does. It provides roads for us. It provides bridges for us. It has a rail system. It does all kinds of benevolent things for its citizens, providing a police force, an army. All of those things need to be funded, and that's why you have taxes and why you pay taxes. So it doesn't matter whether you live here or in Russia or China or whatever. I mean, in some way, all those governments, of which we could have been born in any one of them, we happen to be born in America, but we could have been born any place, all of those governments have to in some way be funded by the people that are in those governments. And that happens as we talk about the United States of America. It happens through our system of taxation. So when Jesus asked for a coin, he was implying that the Jews were benefiting from Caesar's government and therefore they should pay their taxes. So government is due what government requires. What does it require? Our obedience to its laws, that we pay our taxes, that we model by our behavior citizens who respect, honor, and are in submission to the leaders and policies established for the good of its people. Now realize, no government is perfect. All governments are pagan. All are run by sinners. You've only had one government that's ever been upon this earth that was not a pagan government because it was a theocracy, and that's Israel itself in the Old Testament. But that's gone. Israel's been set aside. Now there will come in the next age, in the tribulation age, there will come one who's going to rule the world and have a one world government that will be diabolically run by Satan himself through the Antichrist. Seven years, that will be defeated. Jesus Christ in his second coming will come. He will establish his kingdom down here on earth, and he will rule perfectly and righteously. And that's something that none of us know about, and that is living under a government where the person in charge of the government, runs it absolutely perfectly. But we will all, who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ and belong to him, we will experience that someday. All governments, you have to understand, all governments are pagan. Even the United States of America is a pagan government. It is run by sinners, both sides of the aisle. That's why you see the things that take place on both sides. You can't take a look at one side and say, oh, this is the godly, righteous side. No, you judge anything that's going on. When you go into a voting booth and you cast a vote, you vote for the side that is abiding by the moral law that is written upon their heart. And the closest thing that you can see to the principles in the Bible. 
And that's how you cast your vote when you vote. And as this society continues to go down and down and down, it becomes more and more difficult to go into the voting booth and to vote. But we do the best we can because we have that privilege living in this country. You live other places where there's not election or the elections are a sham. Your vote doesn't make any difference. That's a different story. And you don't cast a vote that's going to make any difference. We have that responsibility, that privilege here. We need to take advantage of it. God is due all that we are. God is due all that we are. Our lives, our worship, our love, our adoration, and our praise. He is due our time, our financial and material resources. So when we say here, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's, when we talk about the things that are God's, it's everything. We belong to him. Soul, mind, body, our strength, everything we have is pointed to him. He owns us. So the coin that Jesus is asking for bore the image of Caesar, and therefore Caesar was due what belonged to Caesar. However, we bear the image of God, don't we? Meaning God owns us, all that we are and all that we have. So God requires much more than what the government does. God requires all of us and everything that we have. I want you to note here that all issues of government are spiritual issues and not political. You'll notice that they put this question to Jesus, and it deals with the government. But Jesus never just sees things from a political or governmental viewpoint. He always sees everything as spiritual. And that needs to be true of us. We need to see all things that take place in government or on the political stage, politicians. We need to see those things through the lens of the Bible. We need to evaluate those things. We need to take a look at all of Congress and evaluate all of Congress through what the Bible says. So Jesus sees this as he always does, from a spiritual perspective. Why? Because politics never solved anything, particularly for eternity. It may solve some temporal problems. It may. But if you're talking about anything that's going to have any lasting value, then you have to be taking a look at the spiritual aspect of it, and that only God invading a life or lives or a nation can change that nation, not politics. When we talk about a coin, next slide, here's a sample of a coin. You'll see it here. You'll see the image on the coin, which would be a, a Herod or a Caesar. So it could be Tiberius Caesar for instance, on there. And that's why the Jews objected to it. They would not carry that coin around because of that. Next slide. Again, you'll see on the left a picture. This would be the front side of the coin. It would have a picture again of the Caesar. And then on the back side would be an inscription that would describe 
something about the government or the Caesar himself. Um, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to see if I can finish this up because I want, I want you to see this and spend enough time taking a look at it. But I want to give you, and if I have to uh, shut it down because it's going too long, I'll do that. I'll stop it. But I want to give you a biblical view of government and its leadership from five scriptures. And these are really super important. Um, we're in a, a year where we're going to have an election in November. It's already starting to heat up, as it always does. seems like this year it's even more heated because of what's going on than normal. But how do we view leadership? How do we view, in this country, how do we view presidents that end up being elected into power? All right, let me run these by you. And you need to put these down or run them off. It would be a good idea to memorize them so you got this at your fingertips, especially, like I say, during this year when we're going to be involved in elections, is to understand uh, what's going on with leadership and with elections. All right, number one, Daniel 2.21. What does Daniel 2.21 says? It says, he removes kings and he establishes kings. Who does that? God does. So whether you take a look at past presidents that we've had, I don't care where you want to start at, Clinton, Obama, Bushes, right down to Trump, right down to Biden, everyone, listen to me, every one of those individuals, of those presidents, were put in office by God. That's what it's saying here, Daniel 2.21. That means, and it's no surprise, God is sovereign over everything that goes on down here on this earth. He's the one that puts kings in office, establishes them, and he removes them from office. It's up to him how long he wants somebody in. You say, well, why would he put in a given individual that seems to do this and that and whatever? Well, that's, that's his prerogative. That's, that's up to him what he's trying to accomplish. I'm not God. I can't tell by looking at what is happening and who's in office and Congress and what goes on, I can't look at that and say, well, it shouldn't be that way. What's going on here? God can't be involved in this because look at who's in office. You can't say that. If you say that, you have a very, very shallow understanding of the sovereignty of God out of the Bible. And you really need to study it closely. We spent one Saturday, we had a Saturday Bible conference where I spoke for and taught for seven hours on the subject. It's a big, huge subject. And it covers these individuals that God is sovereign over. He's sovereign over the kings, and he removes them, and he puts them in office to serve his purposes. Not my purposes, his purposes. Number two, Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So he not only puts the kings in power and removes them from power, but while they're in power, his heart, the king's heart, the king's will, is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So I can look at 
policies that are being enacted, things that come before Congress, Supreme Court, whatever it is, decisions that are made, and so on. The president that says certain things and whatever. And though I pray for those things, even though I look at them and I say, what was just enacted is not right, not biblical, not moral, whatever. I do understand that God is in charge of what comes out of the White House. God is in charge of what comes out of Congress. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And so he is determining what's coming out. And he's it's serving his purposes whatever those purposes might be. It's like Romans 8.28 in the believer's life. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. What are the all things? Well, they're good things, they're bad things, they may be evil things. He takes all of it, he works it all together for good. That's what he's doing in the world through governments, all different kinds of governments all around the world. He is taking those decisions, everything that they're doing, and he's working it all together. And in the end, it'll be that which will glorify him the most. You say, well, I don't particularly understand that. Well, just realize his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts than our thoughts. All right, so once we've got it established that God is the one who puts kings into power, he puts prime ministers into power, he puts presidents into power, He puts dictators into power. That's Daniel 2.21. When they're in power, he is moving their hearts around like channels of water. He's turning them whichever way he wishes to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Then that moves me to number three, 1 Timothy 2.1-3. Paul says to Timothy, First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of of all men. Notice verse 2. For kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So what are we to do? Well, if I realize that God has put the kings in power, he's put the president in office, he's in the White House, I have an obligation, scripture says, to pray for him. I pray for his salvation. I pray for the decisions that he's making. I pray for it all things about the president, about the Congress, whatever. Kings and all who are in authority. Now, what am I praying? I'm praying that the decisions that are made will enable me, as a believer living in this nation, to lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And by the way, that's being written Paul's writing that to Timothy, and who are they under? They're under Nero, and Nero is out to destroy Christians. Wicked, evil individual. And Paul says, we need to pray for Nero. If Paul was here today, he would be saying, we need to pray for President Biden. Whatever president you find yourself under, you have an obligation to pray for that individual. And we pray for them that the things that they enact, the things that they do, will enable us to lead a tranquil and quiet life. What does that mean? It means a life where I can go about my business of leading people to Christ, 
of discipling them, of bringing them to maturity in Christ. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm called to do. That's what every believer is called to do. In all godliness and dignity, it says. That leads me to number four. Number four is 1 Peter 2.17, where it tells me that I need to, what? Honor the king. Boy, there's a toughie. It's one thing to pray for our leaders. And then you say, what? I'm supposed to honor the king? Yeah, it do, and it doesn't say, by the way, honor the office of the king. It says honor the king. Well, how can I honor the king? Because of, go back to Daniel 2.21. God's the one that put him in there. God's the one that's directing his heart, Proverbs 21.1, and his decisions and so on. So therefore, I can step back and I can honor the king. I might not agree with what he's, what he's doing, the decisions he's making, the policies that are coming out of there. I might not do that. That's fine. But I do realize God has him in there for a purpose. And whatever that purpose is, that's up to God. I'm to be a model citizen. I'm not to sit and just continually, as I hear so many Christians do, they just trash talk the president, regardless who's in, who's in uh, office. They're just continually putting him down and whatever. That's on God's will for you. God's will for you is that you honor whoever's in office because God is the one that's putting them in there. If you trash talk the president, you're trash talking God. You're saying, God, I don't believe that you put him in office. But the Bible tells us he did put him in office. So we are to honor the king. And lastly, we are to, uh, number five, uh, we are to be in subjection to the government. And I'm going to stop right here because as you can see, this is a fairly long passage, seven verses. I want to cover what's in there, and then 1 Peter 2, 13 to 16. So we'll stop right here, and we'll pick it back up again, and further take a look at how do we view leadership, how do we view government. This passage has given us an excellent opportunity to, especially in this year of elections and so on, to get a really good biblical perspective on how do I view the presidency, how do I view elected officials, those who are in authority, whether it's the mayor of the town, the governor of the state, the police force, the military, whoever it is, the Supreme Court, whatever, I am given specific instructions for that. So we want to take a look and we want to, we don't want to rush through this. We want to spend the time so that we understand this because we can not only help ourselves and calm ourselves down instead of wringing our hands over what's going on, and we can help others who may be having a difficult time trying to deal with the things that they see going on in our government, our leadership, in politics, and so on. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this time that we have had to spend looking at this passage where we've got religious leaders that are trying to uh, trap your son, but no one's ever going to trap your son. Uh, your son laid out the truth and silenced those who were opposed to him. So we're thankful for these, these passages, these times 
that we take a look at the interaction between the religious leaders and Jesus himself. And we're thankful that this has given us an opportunity to spend some time taking a look at government and what government is all about in this leadership and how do we react to it and how do we view it, how do we see it. Because, Lord, we want to please you. We want to do your will. We want to be good model citizens that accept what's going on. We understand we have a place to pray for our those who are in power in our country. We have the privilege of being able to vote. There are certain times we can go and we can speak forth a word of righteousness in a situation, whether it be a caucus or wherever it might be, or just with individuals or standing talking to my neighbor across the fence. All different kinds of ways we can interact with people and say things and speak things from your word that shed light on how we feel about what's going on in government, in politics, whatever. So we're thankful for this time that we can just crystallize. We can just focus, bring it into clear focus. Your word is is very clear. It doesn't leave any place where we can scratch our heads and say, well, I don't know what this is really teaching or whatever. No, it's very, very clear. And it's taught all the way through Scripture. We're, we're hitting some key verses just so that we got some kind of a concise little outline in our hands that we can use. But we pray that, that you'll, you'll help us to understand this and to see it clearly. So, help us to think these things through now, apply them to our lives. For we pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen.